Praise the Lord. Thank you, Brother Nathan. Wow. The Word of God. Psalmist says in Psalm 119, 105 and 106, He says, Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet. is a light unto my path. I have sworn and confirmed that I will uphold your righteous judgments. You're talking about a love letter. You go back and read Psalm 119. You're talking about someone having a passionate, deep, burning love for the Word of God. Oh, that I could even come close to that kind of passion for the Word of God. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Brother Nathan. That was a good uh, preparatory song for our preaching this morning. You can turn in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 2 and hold your finger there, put a marker there, but I'm going to take you in the opposite direction, back over to 1 Peter chapter 2 in just a moment, and we'll begin there. But our primary text will be in Malachi chapter 2 as I continue in this series of messages from that wonderful minor prophet book of the Bible. Have you ever had a dream that you just declare as you're dreaming it that it is it's, it's so real? That, that you almost have to, you know, jar yourself when you wake up. Like, was that real? Was it true? I had, I had such a dream. Now, folks, don't, don't confuse me to be given prophetic dreams. This was not, to my knowledge, prophecy. But it was just a dream. But it was so real. It, it was a, it was a presidential White House ceremonial banquet dinner. I could see it. I could see the, the White House and the, 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 the Rose Garden and this massive banquet that was set up with all the linen and crystal and gold and silver and all the servants and the ten course meal and the, the orchestra playing over in the background and I was invited. It was a, it was a banquet to, to honor community servants. And I was on the on the guest list. I couldn't believe it. And I can still see it. And and the Lord is merciful because it was actually President Reagan and, and Nancy. And so, you know, and and so they they, they graciously greeted each of us and, and, and we were escorted to our table of of, of honor and, and I remember sitting there and I don't know how this plays into the picture, but but there was a delegation of, of citizens from Africa. I guess Kenya's still in my brain. And, and they were sitting at the table with me. And so we were talking to Swahili and, and just swapping, you know, stories. And it was so exciting and it was so lavish and elegant. And I was just, you know, so just, just when, you know, they called each of the honored guests up and you got to say a little speech. And I remember now, y'all are thinking, what did he eat last night? <laughs> but I remember going, my name was called. And as I was making my way and all the eyes were focused on me and President Reagan was smiling, that big beaming smile, and I was making my way to the podium and, and looking at President Reagan and Nancy and, and just getting ready to, to give the speech that I had prepared, my alarm clock went off. <laughs> I was so disappointed. Oh my goodness. But it was so real. It was so real. But you know, I tell you that because as honored as I felt in the dream, (laughs) the fact is, as I think about who we are in Christ, not just, hey listen, being an honored guest at the White House, 
Even being the president of the United States itself, folks, pales in comparison to the honored position that God Almighty has bestowed upon you and upon me. And I want you to see that because we live in a culture and a time when Christianity is frowned upon and it's ridiculed and Christians are put down and you can actually, it can affect the way you think about yourself if you listen to the world. But could I encourage you this morning instead to listen to the Word of God? You see, the Apostle Peter is writing to Christians who are undergoing fiery trials of persecution. And they've been ridiculed and beat down and persecuted and and harassed. And Peter is reminding them of something very important that pertains to them as followers of Jesus Christ. And so in 1 Peter in chapter 2, you're familiar with these words, but but let me just read just a couple verses here, or three or four verses, to set the tone for where I want to go with the message this morning. Peter reminds them there in chapter 2, 1 Peter, in verse 4, he says, Coming to Him, speaking of Christ, as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. Speaking of the Lord Jesus. You also, he's talking to these persecuted Christians, you also as living stones. Do you see the parallel? He spoke of Christ as the living stone. But he says also you. You as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. Let me say that again. A holy priesthood. Called by, equipped by, gifted by, honored by God. That's you and me. He's talking to you and me. We are not just ordinary earthlings. We we are, by by virtue of right of redemption, we are a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Drop down to verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people that you may proclaim the praises of Him who who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, who once were yet not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Wow. That's who we are. And I want you to hold on to that thought, because I will revisit that very concept. And don't you let go of it, because it's important for you to appreciate the relativity of of the message, or or the the, uh, connectedness of the message to you and me. And so as we think about this, I was reflecting on Pastor Tim's message last week in chapter 2 of Galatians. And, and, he used, and he focused on one of my favorite verses in the Bible, Galatians 2.20, where Paul says, For I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. And that passage reminds you and me that as a result of the true gospel 
and our faith in the true gospel, and by the absolutely amazing grace of God, there's no other way to put it, we went from being hopelessly in debt to God, spiritually, to being incredibly blessed by this same righteous God through our Savior, Jesus Christ, who after our conversion... Think about it. Paul says, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Christ lives in me. Could I remind you that Christ is, according to to, to the writer of Hebrews, Christ is the great and perfect high priest. And so if Christ is dwelling in you and me, He's living in us by the power of His Spirit. And so if Christ is living in you and me, let me tell you something, He is living through you and me, or He wants to live through you and me. And He hasn't given up His role as the great, perfect high priest. See, You see where I'm going? If He's living in us and He's carrying out His role as, as Christ and as the high priest, then He is still engaged in His priestly activities, but He's doing it through the people of God. You and I, every day we get up, we have the awesome, unimaginable privilege of, of serving as priests. What do priests do? They bring people to God. They represent the people before God. And so, as we look at this today, I want to remind you that you and I, according to the Word of God, we are a royal priesthood, a holy priesthood. I don't care how young you are, how old you are. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and He abides in you, then you are a priest and God expects us to function that way. Now, I'll take you back to our primary text in Malachi chapter 2. Now, I realize it's been a few weeks since I launched this series and started in, in the book of Malachi. And you may recall that this, this book has a historical placement somewhere in the mid-4th or 5th century B.C. This is after the children of Israel have returned from being in exile and captivity to the Babylonians and subsequently to the Persians. And now, you know, by God's grace and according to His prophecy, He's allowed segments of the Jews to return back to Jerusalem where they have begun to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, including the walls. They've rebuilt the temple under the direction of Zerubbabel. And so the temple is rebuilt. They have reinstituted the the religious practices, if you will, of Judaism there in Jerusalem. But reconstruction doesn't guarantee revival, folks. Just because they rebuilt the temple, just because they had reinstituted the sacrifices and the priesthood, doesn't mean the people of God had gotten their hearts right with God. In fact, hence the the need for the prophet Malachi. And he comes to the people of God in chapter 1. You remember, God had to remind them, I love you. They were questioning God's love. They said, oh, you say you love us, but... You've probably heard that in your family circles from time to time. They had the audacity to even question God's love. And then when God accused them of being neglectful and disrespectful, then they again said, how do you mean that? And God says, I'll tell you how. You despise my name. You defile my offerings. God gives a scathing rebuke of His people's negligence. And their obvious failure to show Him honor and reverence that's due to holy God. 
In fact, God says there in chapter 1, verse 6, He says, To you, priests who despise my name, you say, in what way have we despised you? You offered defiled food on my altar. And then he went on to tell them exactly how they did that by offering blemished and, 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 and flawed animals that, that broke the law of, of Moses. And then the Lord goes on. I think it's important in chapter 1. Just as a recap. Not, he, he rebukes the people in general for being negligent and being disrespectful and dishonoring towards God and irreverent towards God. But God is careful to assert a couple of times in verse 11. He reminds them that irregardless of how they act, irregardless of how they respond to Him, God makes it very abundantly clear that He is worthy of worship. Irregardless of how Christians act today or how wayward churches are today, And how disrespectful some Christians are and irreverent some Christians are in their lives. Let me tell you something. God is still God. He is still holy. He is still righteous. He is still perfect. He is still all-powerful. And He is still worthy of praise and honor and worship. In chapter 1, verse 11, I like this verse. It says, From the rising of the sun even to the going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. God says... Forget the Jews. Even if the Jews don't praise me. He said, there's coming a day. There is coming a day where all the nations will bow down and they will worship the God of all creation. God says, I'm worthy of that worship. And so He's rebuked the people in general. But now, but now we turn to chapter 2 as we move forward. In verse 1, God directs His reproof now to the priest of Israel. And in verse 1, he says, and now, in other words, he's been talking to the general populace, but now his, his almighty, all-seeing, judging eye turns like a laser to the priest. It reminds me when I was a kid growing up, I know you all find this hard to believe, but I was probably the instigator among the 11 children in our family. That was before I was saved, hallelujah. I don't know, I just had that Dennis the Menace kind of mischievous nature about me, and I was always dreaming up these schemes for me and my brothers to get into. And inevitably, we'd get caught. My mother had eyes in the back of her head and radar and all that good kind of stuff. And she was, and so we'd get busted. And I can still see it. She'd gather us all together, you know, ten little Indians minus my good sisters who never got into trouble. But, but there we were. And she would, she would blast us and you all know about I'm so disappointed, you know, and all that. And, and announced it. But then, but then, you know where I'm going. Just before she let us go, I knew it was coming. So I braced. And then she would rivet her eyes on me. And you, Charles Hayward Martin. I said, oh, this is it. You should know better. You're the oldest. You better, you know, and on and on. Well, this is kind of what, and I felt bad, folks. I did. I repented at the moment and fell again. But anyway, God says, and you now, priest, of all the people, of all the people. He says, and now, O oh priest, the commandment, this commandment is for you. If you will not hear, and if you will not take it to heart to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts, I will send a curse upon you. 
I will curse your blessing. Yes, I have cursed them already because you do not take it to heart. God is directing His attention and His admonition. And by this, God is not just attempting to, to absolutely demolish the, the priests. He's not looking to abolish them and, 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 and do them in. He really is wanting to reprove them in a manner such that they will repent and they will come back. But God confronts the heart problem among His people, His priests primarily. And by that, I'm not talking about an anatomical, physiological problem such as blocked arteries or a failing heart valve or something like that. No, no. When I I talk about a problem of the heart, God singles the priest out first because He realizes there's a problem within their will. Look what He says there in verse 2. God says, if you will not hear and if you will not take it to heart... Literally, that means if you will not place this upon your heart. It's, it's really not about emotions. I know oftentimes we equate the heart with emotions. Feelings. And this really has nothing to do with feelings. It's about the will. God is saying, unless you determine to adjust your will, to change your mindset, and to change your ways, God says, you're headed for trouble. Let me tell you something. The Bible is abundantly clear. God does not look with favor upon wayward, lazy, irreverent, negligent priest. If you don't believe me, go back. You don't have to turn back. I think I shared this before in Leviticus chapter 10. You may remember in verses 1 and 2 in the Levit- Leviticus. Try to say that 20 times fast. Leviticus chapter 10 in verse 1 and 2. The wayward, negligent, irre- irreverent sons of Aaron... They must have been scandals. Even though they were priests, they must have been scandals. And, 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 they, and it says that they went to, to bring burnt offering or, or incense into the presence of God, which is their priestly responsibility. One commentator suggested that possibly they were even drunk. They're half-heartedly, you know, absent-mindedly going in to do their sacred duty and, and just in such a negligent attitude that they didn't do it the way the Levitical law required. They were supposed to take the fire from the brazen altar before they went into, but they just grabbed the first source of fire. Any old fire will do, right? I mean, what's fire to God? We can't even see Him. And they proceeded to go in with what was called strange fire. Folks, there was a burnt sacrifice that day, but it wasn't a bull or a goat. It was Aaron's two sons. And so the Bible says that God brought forth a blaze of fire to and consumed Nedab and Abihu and burnt them up to a crisp. God doesn't look lightly upon His priest taking their jobs lightly and being irreverent and disrespectful towards Him. Another time in 1 Samuel, you remember Eli, he was a priest with the nation of Israel. And Eli had two sons. Now these two were scandals. I mean, these two boys, I mean, with names like Hophni and Phineas, you know, it sounds like bad guys in old westerns, right? Which is that come up at gun smoke or something like that? Hophni and Phineas. But let me tell you something, they were scandals, all right. They were supposed to be priests because you see, just like Aaron's two sons, they were sons of the priests, so they were preachers' boys. Tim, you might want to Pastor Tim, you might want to take note of this. You know? I don't know how these bad preacher boy stories come up, but it's there. And, and so these boys, these men, 
they were, they were having sexual relations with, with the women that were coming to the tabernacle to worship God. Not only that, they were greedily partaking of the meat that was intended for the offering for God. They were greedily hoarding it for themselves. And then, you know, the Bible says God really didn't like... In fact, He called them the sons of Belial. The devil. That's, the, that's how... In fact, the Scripture says... Uh, he looked at those two wayward priests and it says God determined He was going to kill them. Now, I don't know about you, but if the word gets out that God's going to kill you, I, I really don't think there's much need to get, keep going. When God's got you on His hit list, and sure enough, because they did not repent of their wayward ways, God did. He killed them in battle. What am I trying to say? God doesn't just, you know, uh, casually look at His people who are His priests who are neglecting their responsibilities and neglecting their duties to Him and their attitude stinks towards Him. God doesn't say, Oh, goodness, what am I going to do with Him? I think you can take an example from these two illustrations right there that God's anger burns against those who are His priests. And here through His prophet Malachi, the Lord confronts a generation of priests who by their actions demonstrated they didn't love God. It's like that old saying, the problem of the, uh, the, at the heart of the problem is a problem of the heart. And that's what Malachi is, is saying on behalf of God. He's saying, God, holy and righteous, all powerful. How many times through, I pointed this out last time, God uses his name, Lord of hosts, El Sabaoth. I mean, if you want to pull out a big, powerful name for God, you throw out the Lord of hosts. It means, literally, the commander of all of creation. The victor over all adversaries. You don't mess with El Sabaoth. And they were profaning His very holy name. The Lord admonishes them, this group of corrupt priests, because... They did not honor Him. Well, let me tell you something. God also confronts heart problems in His priests today. Now, you remember that beautiful passage I shared with you out of 1 Peter 2? You remember how God has already called and qualified every true believer? And I emphasize true. Because if a person is not dedicated to following Christ and committed to being obedient to the teachings of the Word of God and following the Lord's direction by His Holy Spirit, if that person does not obey the Lord and walk with the Lord, hence they're not a Christian. But for those who truly are, you are also a priest. And so I challenge you today, what is God saying to you and to me? As you think about your life as God's priest, how are you going about your daily activities? Do you understand? Do, do you understand that the most important thing that we do, it tells us, God tells the priest right there in chapter 2, verse 2. He tells them that, He says, listen, unless you place it upon your heart, you determine by your will to do to give glory to my name. There used to be an old song back in the 60s, I think it was. It was one of those love songs. What am I living for? And then it went on to say, if not for you, baby. But <laughs> we don't do that here in church. But, but really, what are you living for? 
Can, can I suggest, based on the teachings of the Word of God, that your purpose in life and my purpose in life is not to acquire things, it's not to gain money, it's not to build houses for ourselves or have extensive wardrobes or to be famous and prominent and to have lots of friends. No, that those are all fine and nice according to the blessings of God. But let me tell you what your purpose of, on this, of being on this earth is. It's right there. It's right there, priest. Your whole purpose in life is to give glory to the Lord. To give glory to His name. As you go about your activities in your household. As you go about your activities at work. As you go about your activities at school. As you go about your activities in the community. As you conduct relationships in your actions and your habits. Your goals and your visions and your priorities. I ask you, priest... Are you on a regular, consistent basis giving glory to the name of God? You say, well, I thought that was for preachers. I mean, isn't that why they go to seminary? Isn't that for missionaries? No, that's for every person according to what Peter says. We are God's royal priesthood. We have a responsibility to, to get up in the morning and make the priority of our life by saying, by saying something like, Lord... I don't know what you have in store for me today, but you know. And I want to pray, Lord, that you help me to be faithful and obedient, that I might bring glory to your name. Well, as we move on in chapter 2 to verse 3, we look at what I call the elaboration of God's uh, admonition. Jehovah issues a drastic and an urgent appeal. He threatens to withdraw His blessings from His people. And that's what he's, if you go back in verse 2, about halfway, look what God says. He says, I will send a curse upon you. I will curse your blessings. My goodness. He says, even when you attempt to bless the people, I'll curse that. So don't stand before the people and, and go through that rant of, you know, may the Lord bless you and keep you and may He make His face shine upon you and, and be gracious to you and may His countenance be lifted up on you and may He give you peace. He said, don't bother. Don't bother. When you try to pronounce a, a, a blessing upon the people because of your wicked hearts, I'll make it a curse. He threatens to withdraw his blessings and bring curses. Pastor Tim took us into Deuteronomy. I think it was chapter 28, but if you go back and read Deuteronomy 28, 27 to 28, you'll see the chapters of blessings and curses. It's a divine principle there in the Old Testament that stands the test of time. Those who are obedient to God, God will bless. Those who choose to be disobedient to God, God will curse. And that's the principle that God is applying right here. He says, if you don't get your hearts right, if you don't get your mind right, if you don't get your will towards me right, I will withdraw my blessings. I will bring cursing upon you. And so in verse 3, he says, Behold. And you know, when you look at that in the original text, there's a sense of urgency there. When God said, Behold. You know, if I'm getting ready to run over here to McDonald's and, you know, just run across the street, walk, you know, and I'm, you know, distracted and I'm getting ready to cross 109 and there's an 18 wheeler coming in one direction and a cement truck in the other. And, you know, and one of you just say, Behold, Pastor. <laughs> Watch. Look out. No, I doubt you'd do it that. You'd probably say, Watch out! You dummy! 
God says, Behold. He's not saying, you know, somewhere down the road, I'm going to get you guys. No, no. When God says, Behold, there's a sense of urgency. There's a sense of immediacy. God's saying, I'm getting ready to act. I think about my father, and you know, he was a godly, he is a godly man. He's a loving man. Very patient when you got eight boys. But when we were out of line, and I saw him begin to dangle with, deal, deal with his buckle on his belt. He said, Sam, you're shaking your head. You know, brother, you've been there, right? And he unleashed that belt and buckle it, and he begins to, that's behold. He didn't have to say a word. That, that was behold. Somebody's ham was going to fry. And it was usually mine. But anyway, God says, behold, I will rebuke your descendants. Now, I won't go back and read, but if you want to make a note, in Hosea chapter 4, verse 6, God gives the same kind of admonition. He says, not only will I curse you, not only will I judge you, but you go, I will bring the consequences upon your descendants. So priest, take note. When you get out of alignment with God and you become irreverent and negligent in your walk with God and you fail in your, your, your responsibilities as a priest, listen, it will have consequences. It will have consequences on you and it will have consequences on those you love who are close to you. I see it played out. So do you. I see wayward fathers and, and, and Christian fathers straying from the Lord and God begins to chastise them. Let me tell you something. When He's chastising that father, the ripples affect the wife and the mother and the children. You better believe it. God says, listen, I, I will... And look, I hope we're so close to lunchtime, but, but God's Word is very true. And we read this more this morning in our gathering this morning, but God says, Behold, I will rebuke, I will rebuke your descendants and spread refuse on your faces. I, I appreciate Brother Richard Stovall reading from his very accurate translation. I think you said dung. Can you say that in church? <laughs> God says to these holy priests, these righteous servants, He says, When I rebuke you, I will disgrace you. And He says, I'll tell you how. It'll, what it will be like. He says, you know how you bring the bulls in here to the tabernacle, to the temple to sacrifice? And he says, you, you're, you're supposed to take the blood and the fat. And you burn it on an offering to God. You offer that. And to get all the fat, you've got to go into... I know, some of you get a little squeamish, but you've got to cut them open. I've killed hogs before, folks. I know about going in and getting the entrails. How many of y'all ever cleaned chitlins before? Now we're really getting down to the brass tacks. There you go. Not a pleasant job. Not a pleasant job. But anyway, God is saying, I'm, I'm going to take those chitlins. I'm going to take the very, the matter within the intestines dung. Thank you, Richard. And I'll, I will spread it. I'll smear your face in it. Let me tell you something. They took the cow's carcass, his hide, they took the entrails and certainly what was in the entrails and all of that was taken out of the camp. You get it out of sight because it's all unclean. It's disgraceful. And God says, if you don't change your heart towards me, I will smear this on your face and in my holy eyes you will be disgraceful. And what do you do with disgraceful things? You cast them away. Get them out of my sight, God says. That's pretty harsh, isn't it? But remember, God is confronting them 
in an attempt that they might repent. Let me tell you something. God holds His priest accountable. He holds His priest accountable. You know when Jesus, when Jesus was pre- um, Jesus was teaching in Matthew chapter 21, you remember Jesus in that parable of the vine dresser? Jesus lambasted the Jewish leaders. He laid them out and they knew it. In that parable, he's saying, you are being unfaithful, you are being unrighteous, you are a disgrace to God. And they knew it. In that latter part of that chapter, they determined, we gotta kill this guy. He's, he's, he's stepping on our toes. We gotta get rid of him. But let me tell you something, church. God holds us accountable. We are his priest. And as the body of Christ, as a church, let me tell you something. If you go over to Revelation in chapter 2, you know this. You know this, this, this portion of Scripture. Very familiar to you. We call it the, 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 the confrontation or the letter to the loveless church. The church at Ephesus. And God began in verse 1, it talked about, Oh, I see your works and all the things that you've done good. But in verse 4, listen to what God says to His priest at Ephesus. His Christians, His believers, His people. He says, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You have left your first love. You have left your first love. You don't love me like you used to. You don't honor me like you used to. You don't worship me the way that you're supposed to. You don't serve in a priestly manner before the lost world in a way that you're supposed to. And I thought it was interesting. God said in verse 5 of chapter 2 of Revelation, He says, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You've left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent. And do the first works, or else, now listen, this is very important, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Do you realize that Christ is talking to the church? He's talking to blood-washed, redeemed believers in Jesus Christ. And He's saying, if you get wayward and your heart and your will is not right towards Me, if you are not bringing glory to My name, he says, I'll remove you from your lampstand. What does that mean? Well, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you'll lose your salvation. Because once saved, you're always saved. You're secure in Christ. But, if God sees His people, just like He did the priest there in Malachi's day, if He sees His priests, us, being more preoccupied with our selfish, self-centered, materialistic, humanistic needs, if He sees us chasing after the world, we're more preoccupied with our own little kingdom than we are the kingdom of God. If we're not concerned about lost souls out there, if we're not serving the King in His kingdom, if we're not being priests to the people who need God, guess what? God will remove us from our position of service. And you wonder why church houses are closing. You're wondering why churches are losing the effectiveness and the dynamo of their ministry. It's because they fail to be the priest God's called them to be. Let me take you to verse 4, chapter 2 of Malachi. Malachi chapter 2, verse 4. Because I want to wrap it up by talking to you and just making sure that you see that after all this Stern and powerful admonition. There's a purpose of God's admonition. It was to prevent them from experiencing His judgment. God says, Then you shall know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord of hosts. If they persisted in their unrepentance toward God, 
then they would receive judgment and rejection from God, just like animal excrements would be treated. And the same thing for believers today. But God says, I am, I am this worked up. I am this disturbed. I am this confrontive towards you because, because generations ago, I established a covenant. And it was a lasting covenant with first Aaron and then the tribe of Levi. God says, I have a special place for you, the priest, to be honored among the people of God, to be provided for by the people of God. All you have to do is give your life to serving me. I'll take care of you. And He says, I want to protect that covenant. That was what God was seeking to do. And you know what? God wants to bless His priests today. You say, why should I go out there and be so sacrificial and give it up my time and energy and, and, and take the risk that I have to do to, to be a priest for God and go out there and risk being rejected when I try to share the gospel or, or give up my time and my energy and my resources to, to help the poor or to invest time in serving in the body of Christ and, and being committed to the church. Why? 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 Because that's what we're called to do. But also, you can never... And I know we outuse this phrase sometimes, but you and I can never outgive God. That's why in Matthew chapter 6, in verse 19 and 20, Jesus says, Don't worry about storing up treasures for yourself here on earth that will rust, moths will eat it, or the robbers will steal it. He said, don't, don't worry, don't be preoccupied with that. Serve me, honor me. Bring glory to my name. Be diligent in serving as my priest. I'm, I'm paraphrasing in between. But he says, and then you will have treasures. Treasures that will last forever. In closing, Ephesians chapter 1, Paul, I love this expression that Paul, he's writing to the priest, us, born again believers in Jesus Christ. Why should we be faithful? Why should we be reverent? Why should we be uh, diligent in serving the God and being faithful as His priest? What's What's in it for us? Well, let me just give you a little glimpse out of chapter 1 of Ephesians. In Ephesians, in chapter 1, verse 3, and we'll just read that verse. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, I submit for you, there's no way in the world that my feeble little finite human mind can even wrap itself around the magnitude of what Paul just said there. Go back and read it and read it over and read it over and read it over. Anything you sacrifice for being dedicated and serving as a priest for the Lord, anything that it costs you here on earth, whether it be emotionally, physically, financially, let me tell you something. When Paul says God has already laid to your credit Every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. What must that be? What must it be? What must it be? Why wouldn't we? Not just for what lies ahead of us. Why wouldn't we be faithful? But when we stop and we look back to the cross and we come to the table... And remember, as we partake of the elements of the table, that the very precious, sinless, darling Son of God, the Lamb of God, suffered in agony, 
was broken, His body tortured and broken, His blood, His sinless, precious, atoning blood shed for you and for me. Oh, why wouldn't we be motivated to be faithful as His priest? Why wouldn't we serve Him with joy? Why wouldn't we serve Him with enthusiasm? Why wouldn't we give Him our very all? And thank Him for the privilege of being called to do so.